Mark Tredinick has been described as, quote, one of our great poets of place, not just of geographic place, but of spiritual and moral landscapes as well. The winner of many Australian poetry awards, including the Blake and Newcastle Prizes, he won the prestigious Montreal International Poetry Prize for 2011, followed by the Cardiff Prize in 2012. His 11 works of poetry and prose include Fire Diary, The Blue Plateau, The Little Red Writing Book, and Australia's Wild Weather. He lives with his family on the Winjicarabi River, southwest of Sydney. The second volume of poetry, Blue Wren Cantos, will appear in 2013, along with a memoir, Reading Slowly at the End of Time. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much for having me. Japanese watercolors, light, and water. Walking underwater. Is that where you're going with that? Water's big for you. It seems to be big. School, a student the other day said uh, there's rain in every one of your poems that you've written. Huh? I hadn't really noticed. Uh, Japanese watercolors and light. Light, I think, is in much of what I've read of yours. Right. I think that's right. I mean, these things are appearing the way that birds appear in, in my poems, I think. It's not an intended thing, so... I respond warmly to those those phrases and words. Clearly, I'm recognizing my um, geography. There's somebody actually who's just been painting me for a, a, a portrait prize at home, and she's depicted me figuratively, but with rain falling on me. I think of myself as being semi-arid, you know, <laughs> in Australian terms, sclerophyll, like the the leaves. Maybe the rain is a longing. Maybe the rain's there for longing for, for um, sustenance for, for the other thing. And, and it's falling too. A lot of water is falling. Uh huh. <laughs> the fall. Yes, it is. In in that Montreal uh, poem, of course, it, it is. I mean, that's interesting. That poem is called "Walking Underwater." But the poem, the, that poem, treats with light the lowness of it, and it treats with. I'm kind of joking it. You know, Portland's expense coming from a fairly dry place because it seemed to me it just never stops mm-hmm. raining. So that was what was going on jokingly uh, there. But there is a larger pattern uh, with with the rain and the and the fall as a sense of kind of impending doubt or in, in, impending doom or doubt inflicting my faith. That's what maybe the rain is. You also talk about the quality of the light when referring to North America, mm. the concern about it. There's also, uh, I mean, I talk about Japanese mm. and lights and watercolors and the fact that you're from Australia. Is there some kind of oriental sensibility at work here? Probably. It's not, uh, it's not a work, very well-schooled one, although I guess it's a, uh, there I, I've developed an interest uh, specifically that includes some Japanese uh, watercolors painting Hiroshika and the, and the lads uh, and that's come in the last 10 years five years especially and that coincides with most of the poetry that you or anyone would know of mine that's uh, that's that's come out kind of post-dates my moving from my publishing background into my ri- into my writing 
uh, which had, which is about 20 years old, all of that. Before that, I was a, a book publisher. Before that, I was a lawyer for a while. But, you know, when I found myself as a writer, I found place writing, landscape writing, nature writing from North America mostly, and recognized myself, my habitat, or, you know, the habitat of my soul, if you like, there. And the interest in weather as an aspect of place was, was right there. And when I discovered that habitat of nature writing, as it were, as my own, I seem to remember myself and my childhood, even though if I think back to my actual childhood, I wasn't especially a nature boy, weather observer, the way that I notice some kids are with their bird books and so on. I do that now, but I didn't do it then. But it's as if I am reliving a childhood I didn't live, if I can put it that way. Or that you may have wanted to live. Wanted to live, but didn't fully or something, because I felt I didn't wanted enough or didn't feel allowed or or maybe reliving my father's or my grandfather's there is a kind of um, throwing back doing again the question then it becomes why do you write the poetry is it in a way to discover who you are or is it to communicate some wonder that you've experienced or is it a combination of the two. While you write, you then reach an epiphany, or have you experienced the epiphany and you want to communicate that? It's a little bit like what I was describing there with doing the reading and then other people's reading and seeming to recognize uh, a self I haven't lived yet. So what happens with the poetry is that something will compel me to write it, and that will be a kind of epiphany, but it's important for me that the epiphany quickly takes on the rhythm of a form of words so sound uh, is, is big somebody once said you can't write the poem until you've heard it mm. well I never hear the whole poem and I'm not sure too many people do but I I do hear it's the rhythm of a key line that often remains as the opening line uh, and it's sort of the rhythm that's going to inform that has in its train uh, the rest of the poem somehow, so I'll have no idea very often how I'm yeah. going to finish ever. So you've got a kind of a trigger, or there's something, yeah, trigger. then you work it through with words yeah. to a point where then you arrive at something that what? Surprises me. If, it, if it's a poem that's going to, going to last, I'll be surprised by where I ended up. Not just the, the the end of the poem, but you know the the poem goes a different direction to get back to your epiphany thing. So in, so the making of the poem is like the slowest epiphany you can imagine, prolonged and prolonged, and it happens in fits and starts. And I get up and forget the poem for sometimes. And that's Gen- why you do it, is it? Because this is so so it's so satisfying, or yeah, that doesn't quite describe how it feels. It is satisfying, and it's it's. I feel I'd have to say most myself and most fully alive and mo- and closest to the the reason I f- you know I might feel I've been sent to earth when I'm writing the poem and and specifically when I'm making it then then that repeats a bit when I well, and still when I remake it so through the drafts and redrafts that will happen for me over the next few days is often a concentrated thing for me and then a month or two later when I have a chance and 
then I'll tend to let something rest and then say the Montreal Prize or something will come up or I want to send it up for publication and then I'll look hard again and often do some quite important work for the poem but it would it's finishing work most other people wouldn't recognize the, the difference but it take when I do that work I, I, I return to that wonderful wonderful enlarged hyperhuman you know transcendent space that the, the poem took me to in the making there's a part that involves doing it for yourself but then there's also a part that involves doing it for the reader mm. or does that dilute it bringing the reader into the equation is this something that you consciously do or is it I don't care about who reads this is this for me the reader is very present but very deep and they're not a demanding reader at least not in the sense that they're going here's what I want you to write for me so mm. would you write this uh, that the, the poem won't make itself unless I can find myself back to a deeply human place because I believe that poetry like all writing but more so is an art performed in speech and speech is definitively human and communicative yes it's designed to connect with someone well, else you know it is and connection it's interesting you know I'll get back to something there that occurs to me but what it connects with or what it communicates is not just of course what it means or what you think is the maker it means it's important for me at least that I'm led into the poem and out the other side by sentences even though some of them might be broken up and fragmented mm. so I am a sense maker and I, I believe in it but if, if all a poem did was communicate to you what I thought I meant then I'd have failed and the poem would be flat on the, on the page so it's all the many other things that speech mm -hmm. communicates and that, that I think make a poem strike someone you know in their flesh and, and heart and we say touch them and so that will be things that I'm not even fully certainly I'm not being very purposive about in the making of the poem I'm just trying to render the uh, spiritual emotional intellectual physical metaphysical space place yes. truthfully get close to it and so render it so that I'm back in it and it seems truthful to me and so that, and the rest of it's an act of faith that if I do that they um, will come yeah. they'll come and they'll, they'll, they'll be there I'm still <laughs> you know shocked uh, when I make readings by how people will come and say that, that phrase, that thing you said there or the way that went and mm. then visibly moved for me in a way as if what I've done is kept my own secret but told theirs That's nice to put, yeah. we are together in real life here and there's all sorts of things going on that the words don't communicate mm. are you trying to replicate that on the page then in yeah. a way. Okay, yes, I guess, and broadly, you know, art, art, artistically, that would be the endeavor. In the making of the line, I don't feel as though I'm trying to do mm. anything except uh, listen as well as I can. Because mm. I do think that. Be honest. I, yeah, honestly, deeply, honestly, but most of it's getting out of the way of something that wants to come. That notion that Seamus Heaney speaks of, of the duende and the, him and others, but the poem that wants to come. You're almost, a conduit. Kind of I'm a conduit, and most of the discipline that I have to practice in the making of a poem feels like a kind of listening and a going, no, that's not it, the rhythm's wrong, that speech music is out of key with the thing that wants to speak it itself. And just to get back to the everything else that's there, I love this thing that Jane Hirschfield says in one of the essays in Nine Gates. She says, a poem begins 
in language awake to its connections mm. begins in language awake to its connections that says it for me pretty pretty damn close um, mm. it's as though I, she attributes to the language the awakeness and now it's very yeah. zen of course and mystical and I, sh- I share that sort of space with her I think that sensibility and that's a hard case to make with some people but that makes it for me so in other words <laughs> you get the word something like right yeah. and they're going yeah but I guess and all the rest of it comes in the, yeah. weather, the weather comes in the light comes in the emotionality all of the stuff you'll never find the words for comes in and then to some extent for some readers reading in silence off the page they'll be awakened to it as well um, so something like that and mm. <laughs> like your word penumbra comes to mind uh-huh. yeah. right okay yes it speaks of uh, the, the, my sense of the other the poem within the poem the words the shadow of the words come in with with the light that the word casts yeah maybe <laughs> I, I was reading uh, the blue uh, plateau ah. yesterday and there's some lovely uh, words about well here we are if a place is your life the very words in your mouth and it is taken what you say and who are you then and where you grieve you fall silent you pass and then you later describe how you begin to speak the plateau slowly together again is that what you're doing with poetry? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, you know, there's, I'm just thinking here about, you know, religion, the word religion. Mm. We get this from, you know, re-ligio, which is to, you know, re-join, to, to reconnect. So if there's anything like a religious mission for me, uh, or a religious feeling that I have, it's a feeling of profound reconnection, even to things that I couldn't name. And don't remember and there's a, there's a kind of wholeness of coming together again and uh, so and the speaking and I'm glad I chose the verb speak there better even than, than talk I think because of its vernacular nurse and its uh, you know deep humanity is kind of you know ordinariness as you read that out to me I heard something that I probably meant as well but my main intention in in writing that piece was to uh, imagine that in the act of talking about whatever out of one's place one is reconnected to the place and it it comes it comes together it rejoins but there's also a sense of the place is talking and you're talking with it so the uh, the coming together in speech here we are talking together the place and I is another sort of sense and that conversation in my mind somehow runs both ways though I know the places are in linguistic terms you know narrowly cast profoundly silent and yeah. I wrestle with that uh, a bit you know uh, too the, the sort of autism of place and that wanting to get inside it and reconnect with it but nonetheless of course there is a kind of sense in which I understand the place is communicating things and since to be human is to be the makers of language and the singers of songs that's a way of being for us as well as making and you know so to speak well in place is to belong in a place the way the eagle belongs in the sky by doing its eagle thing the way yes. so it's an adaptation it's not only a cultural adaptation right speech it's actually a natural adaptation to weather so you know here we are listening to our accents uh, you and I together differently adapted you know the same we're men together we're 
speaking English together, but you know how how we make it is is a, is an adaptation. To it would be hard to say to all the things, but it's nonetheless clear to all of us that Canadian English doesn't sound like Australian English. Yeah. That's the thing, actually, that I bang away a little bit about in and around the book Australia's Wild Weather, which was a commissioned book of to write a kind of lyric essay to accompany some photographs of, of Australian weather. It's a lovely book. It's a picture book. Uh, Way too heavy to carry with me here to Canada, unfortunately. But the National Library of Australia asked me to write that copy, and I got to thinking one of the themes that runs through it is that we aren't actually who we think we are because the weather doesn't go the way we think it goes, if you're still following that. In other words, we, like all people, and rather beautifully, over-identify with certain aspects of Australian weather flooding rains and dryness chiefly and big cyclonic events and fire. Now, all of those things are true. Fire is the one that does get at Australian uh, difference most profoundly. Fire and drought, the unreliability of weather systems. But you see, that doesn't afflict people in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and uh, so much where most of the talking's going on, at least the talking in uh, in English, but nonetheless, we we intuit that from being, you know, on the continent. And I think the way that one speaks uh, and then writes that down has a fair bit more to do with the quality of the light in places, as well as the topography, the up and downness, or the spectacularness of the and the drama of the, the landscapes. Uh, it has as much to do with that as pretty much anything else, I think. The environment that you're in yeah. at the time. Yeah, uh, and that one's people have been in. So, I mean, so there's a memory of what la- what linguistic responses worked in the, to, to apply sort of evolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, la- language evolves. The sound of language and, and syntax and stuff adapts very quickly when you think about it. Australia's not very old in colonial terms. Younger than you guys, but, you know, not much. And... And yet Australian vernacular evolves very quickly. And Canadian differences, which to many Australians aren't profoundly hearable at at first, you know, I I hear them when I'm here, differences from North American accents. You know, you guys would be aware of all of them, but the the kind of, you know, room in a boot and the mountain thing, which I'm now overdoing. But, um, you know, that's a small thing. Australian, we have small Australian differences differences from New Zealand, differences from here that are manifest. Try and say, for example, Cooper Street, where we're on here, to the yeah. taxi driver. Cooper just doesn't resemble, I guess it's Cooper, uh, with the, the big R thing. Well, Cooper in England. Yes, and, and in England. See, where I think the way that I say that's more, the way that all Australians say that's more English than it is American. Yeah, Cooper. Cooper. Yeah, Cooper, but then we do something else. To speak the way that they do in the outback, um, you have to clench your teeth. I discovered when I was out there. It's a very it's a lack of uh, I'm doing it now. But if you try that, uh, a lot of what's Australian begins to happen. And Is that because you don't want to get dust in your mouth? That would be the obvious. And yeah. I think you know it's a trite explanation, but nonetheless yeah. uh, true. Or that you're you're tough. And that the weather and the dust and the flies several of the key natural variables but they're not the only ones that wouldn't that wouldn't get at all of it and then they play in there and so you notice that the other people who are tough are clenching their jaws and so you do it too and so is yeah. that toughness or is that and then yeah. so things evolve so you're getting to the fact that place influences dialect which influences poetry acts of speech all of them so right mm. so that in effect you are hearing 
Australia when you read your poetry. Yeah, <coughs> one hopes so. Yeah, one and and you know what when one reads it, that's a that's I guess an article of faith uh, for me. And I you know I proselytize it a little bit. You know the way that uh, the rose says words to the beautiful effect. Society has its many spokespeople. Let me speak a word for wildness. I I, I feel the same way that he does. You know, you know I'm happy to talk. I can endlessly talk about uh, architecture and art and aesthetics and syntax and and whatnot but but not many people speak up for the primacy of place and the natural world and so i feel obliged to proselytize that sometimes so i probably am overstating the case well about the weather thing but nonetheless there's something beautiful in there that for me anyway when i remember it and try to practice it on the page that's part of the being more than you know merely explicable more than merely communicating thing that I do mm. and I do I do think that when when people respond to something in my work I have this little secret knowledge that in fact it's the place they're responding to I sort of feel as though I listened well that day the other thing is that you know, you've got something to say but you also and it's understanding yourself but you're also you want to as you say, to put on that language a, a magnet, if you will, to invite the reader in. Putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> yeah. Are you doing that? Not that your poetry is, is swinish. <laughs> but a lot of it is about your relationship with the world. How do you make that interesting to For others? someone else. Because there's so much poetry that's... Mm. Not difficult. Difficult is, is an important it's aspect. Is good. It's I, very I good. I agree. It's essential mm. if it's gonna if the poet, poem's gonna last. Yeah. But if it's incomprehensible, yeah, yeah. That's when it becomes. Well, it can die on the page. It can die on the page, and it can alienate the reader. Yeah, yeah. Too. Not only the poem, but poetry. So there's a problem there. So I guess something in me is there's a social democrat Methodist in me that wants to be stern and truthful and inclusive and uh, speak of heaven on earth so that we can all uh, understand it. My grandfather was a Methodist minister and I do think I've got something there or at least I've got in this life form and and time what he got through his Methodism but there's so there's even a degree of kind of preacherliness but there's something also in me that's very dedicated to making some sense on the page. And I'd like it if it's, if it's a difficult, shapely sense, so that, mm. you know, I might say something like, uh, my new life is just my old life with a book in its hand. I like a kind of poetry like that, so the sentence, you know, scans and it makes sense. You can find the subject and the verb and the object, but it's trading in metaphor and therefore it asks, this is the good difficulty, I think, or one way of mm. talking about the good difficulty mm. of poetry, that it does demand that, that a reader stop, stay, come back, unpack the thing that's been offered up, that, that worked first time in some way. Yeah, it has it, to hold your, te- it holds, your attention. Yeah. That kind of, wow. Yeah, memorable speech. That's not Auden, is it? Somebody like Auden. Or so, I wish I'd have written that. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. your poem... For example, 
You got the Kingfisher there. I love the Kingfisher. In fact, I, I think I liked it more than the poem that, that won the, the Montreal Prize, walking, uh, walking underwater. underwater. Although it's not as meaty. But it's funny, you, you talk about Japanese uh, watercolor, and I think of the Kingfisher as being so connected to that whole aesthetic. I know. Yeah, me too. So I'm in the same place. Look, just just secretly, I think not only <coughs> that I like the Kingfisher somewhat better myself as the maker of both poems than Walking Underwater, I think it's a better poem. Perhaps I could get you to read it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, give me yours. Here we go. The Kingfisher for Maureen Harris And so each bird throws the idea of herself ahead of herself up the river a line of spiritual thought without a sinker and flies after it as if the actual could ever hope to reel the ideal in but so it is that awareness of the azure kingfisher a dark electricity a plump trim elegance of intent reaches you on the riverbank that last warm Sunday of autumn split seconds before the bird so that when she passes you at light speed her name is already a bright blue phrase on your tongue is already the unresolved cadence of your second self yeah it speaks beautifully to what language does, mm. to me anyway. Mm. It, you take in you take in the the name of the, the creature at the same time as you take in its beauty. I don't know how much it figured in the final judgment about the getting of the prize. I woke on the week that I learned that I'd won the competition. So before I'd learned it from a dream in which I'd won the competition with that poem. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that great? It was somebody <laughs> speaking to me very clearly in the dream. And so that when Asa Boxer rang on the phone and they finally caught me and they said, you've won, da-di-da. And I said, which poem? Which of them? Because I had the two in there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but my sense was that yeah, it had to be, for a competition, a somewhat longer poem. Yeah. And so that one was always going to be a little trim. You know, it yeah. has a, it has, it's plump. But it has a trim elegance of intent, the way that I'm talking about in the poem, like the, like the bird. But I think it might endure rather longer, that, that poem. But you know what it has? It has a natural epiphany, simply the bird. Mm. And it's being there for two hours while I sat on the bank with the family, actually trying to choose which poems to read for a reading I was going to make that night. Right. And my son had pointed the bird out, and he saw the blueness of it, you know, over there. And I, every time I looked up, it was just being perfectly still, as they do. And then something made me know, without knowing in any sensate way, that the bird was flying just as I looked up and it was there and it flashed by me so I had, there was a natural epiphany and then there's, there's a thought one thought really that that poem plays with something to do with, uh, with the uncanny I suppose coincidence coincidence yes you know what is that thing that actually it's dedicated to Maureen Harris a lovely Canadian poet because Maureen and I had had that conversation about do you, do you ever notice that the birds seem to come and you know they're coming before they come, and they sometimes even tell you their name, even though you've never known their name in the book. That We've been having a conversation in, in Canada 
on my previous uh, visit, or maybe, yeah, yeah, that's a later poem. I wrote that a little bit later after I came home from Canada and the U- U.S. And then what it also has is language. The, some of the, the some memorable pieces of phrasing came to me because out of the endeavor to do justice to the bird and the thought, uh, the right words came. And then you've got a poem. <laughs> well, it's one of these things that this poem seemed to me to perhaps it came complete and that one, one of those yeah. conduit kind of it came fully formed yes. very quickly. Yes, well, it did come to the poet fully formed very quickly. That one, which is which is rare, and I mistrust those poems right, often right, because right. there's generally so much labour entailed. Yeah. And this is a gift. Then. This one was a gift. <laughs> you shouldn't refuse the gift. Yes. Above all, write it down. I do remember walking from that place. We might get back to form, but I worked the line breaks quite hard, and they weren't given. It is a miniature, that poem, and it is a Japanese watercolour, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, that does sonically and through the images that that it evokes what I think of, you know, a Japanese watercolour doing. So you've got that aesthetic in the poem. There's also, there's a a Chinese uh, notion, Jing, forgive me, all you Mandarin speakers, I've just wrecked that, but we (laughs) spell it X-I-N-G in English, and I've had some conversations way post-dating that poem with some Mandarin speakers and poets who say, you know, your work does the jing, the thing, often, which is to halve itself between the scene and the feeling. I think those are approximate English words. The feeling and the thought and the mood and the the human insight. When that works, the scene knows the feeling somehow and the feeling knows, maybe even is, the scene. There are two halves, but they make more than a whole kind of thing and that that's there in a in a Chinese aesthetic of poetry overtly there's been a hell of a lot of philosophizing about all of that stuff and I've just run through there like a child with a ball speaking of lipstick on on an already beautiful woman this is the beginning of walking underwater there is this quietness that hangs over North America as if all the days were double glazed against themselves that's the lipstick. It makes you want to get into the poem. It evolves then from from just appreciating the lines to thinking about what you're saying. You're, at least in my understanding, commenting about what's happened to the environment. There's one level of pleasure that opens the door to a more contemplative experience of the work and probably works that way for me in the making that poem you know I said before that thing about needing to have the rhythm of a set of words that are apt almost apt for something for the felt sense those words gave me delivered up the the poem the opening line especially and it's plain you know that's just a kind of simple declaration of a thought that's that in maybe in other words or without the rest of everything is trite but its virtue is it's plainness I think there it resembles speech mm-hmm. an ordinary yeah. speech we sit down and I say there is this quietness that hangs over North America and certainly there is this quietness we're in plain and then you realize he's saying something maybe a little bit more than that so it resonates with other suggestions that the poem's then going to elaborate in a, I mean I think of Marx wasn't he there's a specter hanging over I don't know if that was Marx or not I think it, it sounds was. like Marx but anyway there's a profundity and yeah. seriousness yeah. but then but then as you say double glazed 
as if the days were days double glazed. Double glazed. A beauty that connects to the profundity that sparks the desire to continue reading this. Uh, the days were double glazed. Of course, you've got the internal rhyme, and then you've got you've got a metaphor showing up, and it's a plain enough metaphor, and it's apt, I think, because you know we don't do double glazing much in Australia, so one notices it. Okay. But I also thought of the donut. There's a double glazed donut. That's American, you know. North American. Tim Hortons in Canada. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Like, that's the joy of writing and oh, reading and no. talking to a reader, I guess. You may not have... Uh, no, no, that one had frankly not occurred. Yeah. Um, you notice that if that's there in the poem, it's there because I allowed myself to hear a thing that wanted to speak to me. I've learned to trust the rhythm and sound of things to come to imply things that I wasn't thinking. I think I'd have to fist up and say, you know, I'm dedicated to resonant simplicity. I do find that it speaks to me in other people's writing, like, for example, Charles Wright, the contemporary North American, and, and others. Mary Oliver at her best, uh, too, I find, uh, and Frost, just to name some who who come to mind, I suppose. There's a kind of dedication to when one can finding the short way, not the long way, in the word. The well Anglo-Saxon. Said. The Anglo-Saxon, you know, the old words are best and the short words... No, the short words are best and the old words, when they are short, when they are old, are the best of all. Um, that's... Uh, I just mangled that, but that's Churchill. And, you know, every word is a single syllable. I also love this thing from Norman MacLean where he says in A River Runs Through It, all good things come by grace and grace comes by art and art does not come easy love that sentence because it has that kind of Anglo-Saxon in his case Presbyterian via you know Missoula Montana sort of inflection but knowing that we'll get closest to the truth with the shortest words organized without affectation the straight line is the the quickest way to the yeah yeah and there's way more in a sentence like that, for example, of, of, of Maclean's than there appears to be at first. You could actually almost live your life by it. It keeps you know, unpacking itself and, and unpacking itself. The metaphor thing where I was going with the double glaze to Jan Zwicky, who's a Canadian poet I much admire, has a wonderful I love her poetry. And she's, she writes beautifully about things that interest me a great deal, too, about you know how to do philosophy but stay lyric and do the lyricism with a speaking voice in a conversational mode. So she and I were, were I think, cut from the same cloth somehow about all of that. But she speaks of the wisdom of metaphor, and I love that notion that, that metaphor is wise, the way I like the way that Hirschfeld says, you know, the language is, is awake. But she says... And when she unpacks that idea a little, she says, you know, the work you have to do as a listener, reader, to understand a metaphor is the work you have to do to become wise. Not knowledgeable, not smart, not expert, mm. but wise, which is a softer, looser mm. kind of thing that includes the, the prob- possibility, probability even that I'm wrong about some of this, but I'm getting there and I'm working at it. What does he mean when he says the days are double glazed? What does he mean when he says... There is this quietness that hangs over. Does he just mean, well, it's quiet out there? Or is there something more? And so I I think, you know, poetry trades in metaphor and one of its great gifts to everyone else, even who doesn't read it, because they get to read it secondhand because Richard Ford reads it, you know, or and it works its way through Richard Ford into some journalism and so it goes out there is that is the kind of wisdom that metaphor 
And I would add to that, as Jan would, I think, to memorably turned phrases that aren't there so much to show off. They might be there because, hell, that sounded great and I had fun with it and it's erotic and I'm going to share it, but there's a kind of playfulness, uh, eros, the more than merely literal going on, uh, and it, it brings the rest of it in with it somehow, including mm-hmm. the wisdom. Well, and wisdom is such a good word if you connect it to the Aboriginal world, mm. being wise about the world, mm. uh, the earth, mm. the place. Mm. I'm conscious that a fair bit of the, you know, my, con- my concern with belonging to country, we'd say, in Australia, and mm. to speak of kinship with place and kinship bonds and understanding of one's self and uh, as belonging to a family, to a clan, to a group along a river or in a valley and the kinship ties are reciprocal country looks after me if I look after country and all of that and I feel always as though I'm treading on other people's ground here but I do sense that we sometimes in the West get stuck in culture and forget our humanity in in which place we we share surely some some deep kinship with all all people. There is a place I say in the, in the Guru Plateau towards the end. There's a place where we all belong somehow, and we know each other there. And that's got to include some uh, some sense of uh, responsibility for for land and the more than merely human world. And indigenous people have everything to teach us about that. And a fair bit of the Western project has been about defacing or trying to forget about all that stuff because we know that if we remember it for too long, Mm -hmm. the buildings will fall over, everything that's so rich and important to us will collapse because it's it's out of keeping, it's out of kilter. And you end off walking underwater with... uh Evening lay on the river like half the psalms I never knew. Mm. So there I am back with my Methodism. Also that sense we began with, I think, about the unremembered, the half-remembered, that uh, one then apprehends somehow in the musical dimension of reality, I suppose. I have this line somewhere where I say poetry overhears the music in the intelligence of things multiple in its dimensions actually that's kind of there and where I'm going with with that last line well just evening lay on the river Mm, nothing fancy about it nothing fancy but it's done in such a way that it's arresting but it's also peaceful and evening lay on the river yes and in its suggestions as well as in its sound. I mean, just with those words, there are lullabies in yeah. its sound. Yeah. Just finally, talking a, a bit about accessibility and writing for the reader while not sacrificing difficulty, mm. who does that best in Australia? Robert Gray, G-R-A-U-I, Robert Gray, uh, I mentioned first, he certainly does that. Uh, for me, Robert's writing now and Robert was writing his first poems in the 1970s he's important for me Robert because he taught me I have often said sometimes in his presence 
and I know he's secretly delighted. He doesn't show his delight so much. I say Robert taught me how to write poetry, and what I mean is that I, he taught me as a young man that it did, not, did me or uh, anybody else no good at all for me to ape Wordsworth. What I needed to do was to write, make poems out of the language with which I led my life. That Raymond Carver said something about that, about the, about the, the author putting his or her own stamp on so that it's them. Mm. And it's hard to find that them, that that self. Sometimes when I'm teaching with the writing students, I say, you know, it's the voice you speak in when no one's listening <laughs> or in which you dream or... And often it isn't, in fact, the actual way you talk. There'll be some difference between between the, the truthfulness, the plainness of the voice that I mean, that articulates self without, as we'd say in Australia, bullshit, pretense. We say that here too. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> and someone like me is, is always masking to some degree in yeah. conversation and in the work too. I don't think we ever quite get, get there to that deep truthfulness. That's got a bit to do with the lipstick mm. that, that you've mentioned. I, I think by nature, I learned as a child to make my way in the world by <clears throat> somehow balancing uh, integrity with pleasingness, with just knowing what it was that worked with people around me. And um, I guess I, I guess I value that, but it's important that both things are, are present. Everything, I read this the other day uh, in the newspaper coming over here, an Australian columnist called Elizabeth Farrelly who writes about architecture but everything else by writing about yeah. architecture and she says everything exists in counterpoint I love that it's a great sentence mm. to me that really speaks of uh, the if something isn't paradoxical it's not true in the first place mm. it's fundamental fundamentalist mm. even and yeah. extreme extreme yeah. Yeah. pious to you know unbalanced unbalanced it's not simple but simplistic maybe and so if it there need to be, for me, some contradictions present. Where my mind went with that was the kind of coexistence of two opposites. We would normally think of somebody as, of, as, as having integrity and honesty because they defy convention and don't dress nicely and are not polite with the elders. Whereas, for me, in fact, I'm a little suspicious of a, an integrity that seems to depend upon wearing the right clothes or, as it were, the wrong clothes and rebelling because rebellion is sort of a, a, an emblem, a badge of here. Thou shalt know me as a rebel because look at me, look how I'm, look how I'm dressed. I've tended to, I've tended to want to make, to live a life and make my work in a space where I'm not overtly, I'm not protesting over much, over much. But when it comes to the making of the work, oh, no, not but. There's an and there, and yeah. when it comes to making the work too, there's a kind of respectfulness for form and form, poetic form, and we don't have time for that. But poetic form is a big deal. For me, and one learns poetic form by tradition, by, by reading the work, mm. and then sure making it new. So to to go back to, to the Japanese, Basho says, of course, learn the rules. So Hound and Elliot said the same thing. Learn them first, exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. there was some correspondence there, right? There was yeah. some, you yeah. know, with Ben Pound's case for, for sure, reading the reading the the Asians and translating, the Chinese, translating yeah. them, and then, as it were, probably learning in them what felt new but also familiar at the same time an almost forgotten thing so you know learn it first and then transcend it so Robert Gray Robert Gray anyone else uh, Judy Beveridge 
Robert Adamson and uh, Les Murray, mm. uh, who'd be the best known of those I've yeah. named. I'm sure he has the highest international uh, profile. And, you know, uh, there'd be others that I could go on and on and on. And yeah. name you could pick up best Australian poems 2013 and get a pretty good cross section. And just remember that, as is ever with those things, half the poets aren't who, be, who should be in there aren't. <laughs> half who shouldn't are because of politics and what and whatnot. Any uh, parting comments about your life, the, your connection with place? Is there something that you want to achieve that you haven't achieved? Always, yeah. There's that phrase from the Zen, the beginner's mind. And I think I have a beginner's mind and I plague myself with, with it in part because I feel as though I know nothing yet about the craft, about me, about... You know, I found myself weeping yesterday in the museum here of civilizations and I, I posted a little Facebook thing to mention this and I'm not sure I can quite articulate or have articulated what that's about but part of it was about hearing and seeing stories of people and and a people peoples who uh, seemed suddenly to me to be incredibly grown up and I felt like a boy not wise yet not wise yet not wise about anything much uh, yet and somewhat pretentious therefore because you know you I've had some recognition, and then it just feels all unwarranted. And it but isn't that what drives everyone forward? Yes, you know, you know, not everyone, but it, acknowledgement that you are ignorant. That's why you go. Ahead I think, I think so, and I think what can become what can be dysfunctional about it is that is that you can you can worry intensely about that and believe it too much, and then not go about the making. But something so far has always got me across that that line from being re- rendered it, it's it's sort of to go back to something Gary Snyder says somewhere is humiliating and then the humiliation is the going back to ground the hummus the hummus which is the basis of of you know what humanity is about and mm-hmm. so you know I'm laid low again as it were mm-hmm. and then I want to get up I want to rise talking as I write in a poem somewhere right get up talking <laughs> and try and you know, hope that the words are going to come and I'll make the new work and of course all you've just got to maintain some faith despite all the evidence of the moment and the emotion that in fact there are some things you've learned mm-hmm. you couldn't maybe name them right now under pressure but there are some things that your body knows your fingers know about about things there are some wisdom you have despite the, the evidence and uh, yeah something drives me to keep wanting to articulate and share that yeah. and sh- so it's a sharing we are given the world we give it back in poetry at least I feel I give it back. It's a kind of gift and, and, and return of gift. And indigenous people teach us that. That's a different economy. Mm-hmm. And if I'm engaged in commerce of some kind, you know, in writing, it's a giving of the gift back. So I keep turning up to give it back, I think. And the pieces, too, putting the pieces back uh-huh. together somehow. Yes, yes, that's what the gift would maybe entail anyway or include in fact to go back to rain which you kind of began with as a poem where I say uh, and the rain on the roof writes the only script there'll ever be for any of this nature knows there's a pattern of connection here maybe it's the work of the poet and other artists to you know re-speak the, the script to find the script and just say hey, maybe it goes like this there's a connection here maybe it's like this 
Well, thanks for uh, showing us the connections that you've made and I look forward to, to more of the same. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Nigel. It's great. I've been speaking with uh, Mark Tredenick, who is the winner of the many Australian uh, Poetry Awards, including the Blake and Newcastle Prizes. He won the prestigious Montreal International Poetry Prize in 2011, followed by the Cardiff Prize in 2012. Thanks again.